Well, it's Palm Sunday. It's not going to be a traditional Palm Sunday service or, or sermon. But I do want to start by reminding us that on Palm Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem to the masses celebrating him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. A week later, less than a week later, he's being put to death. How quickly things can turn, right? You know, it used to be in our culture, in American culture, that many people gave deference to Christian ideals, ideas, and morals. Even if they weren't Christians themselves, there was a respect for biblical principles and morals and for people who lived by them, even even unbelievers knowingly shaped their lives by them because they saw the value in them. More and more we live in a country that is violently opposed to Christianity, how quickly things can turn, right? We live in a culture that wants to eliminate Christianity or any idea of God from our country and from our world. We've moved from respect to ambivalence to hatred. For many Christians, for many uh, in our world, Christianity is seen as a plague on humanity. They say, well, Christianity, that, that Christ, those Christian thoughts, those Christian morals, those Christian values, they're, they're on the wrong side of history. And there is, guys, a, a real spiritual battle, a real spiritual battle being waged, and we see it playing out in the physical world. We see it being played out in relationships and amongst countries and amongst world powers, and there will not be true peace in the world until the end. I want you to know that. can't be true, full peace in the world until the end. You see, in a world created by God, for God, sustained by God, and governed by God, there can be no peace until everything is submitted to God. The only freedom, and thus the only true peace, comes when God's creation submits to functioning how God created it to function. Until such a time that Christ finishes that job, we will only always be in a fight with the world. Or will we always constantly be in a fight? I think not necessarily. You have neighbors, you have coworkers, you have friends, you have family who may not be Christians, who may not believe in Jesus, but they're still, they're still somewhere to the left of hatred. Maybe they're ambivalent, maybe they're respectful, I don't know. But they're not violently opposed, at least not yet. And there's a kind of peace that is possible with them. And I think it's in that peace that worship and service of God, to God, can flourish more than in the conflict. Now, that's not to say, and we've seen throughout history, even the very first few centuries of Christianity, 
that the gospel spreads like wildfire, even in places where it's persecuted. And yet, there's also a sense in which when the world around us uh, cooperates to a certain degree, let's say, with God, with his word, that Christians are able to bring about flourishing in humanity. You see, through obedience, the obedience of God's people, God's blessing pours over even to those who do not yet believe, even to the world. And so this kind of peace, while it's not the ultimate peace that we need in the end, it is a peace that's to be desired. How can we help that along as Christians? Well, in this story today, we have Abraham. He is the representative of God's chosen people, right? And we have Abimelech, the quintessential world power, does not believe in God, that Abraham and his household, which is quite large, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of people. Remember back a few chapters ago, he had a fighting force that was over 200 strong. So, I mean, his household is not like, you know, a small thing. It's a pretty big amount of people. And he's living amongst Abimelech and amongst Abimelech's people. And I think this interaction gives us some principles for peace to operate by. But at a top level, I want to kind of give you a warning, a plea, if you will, that you really need to know, that I want you to understand. And it's this. This is kind of the bottom line. Listen, we can't live in peace if we give up the well. We can't live in peace if we give up the well. Let me explain. Let's look at the passage and let's find out what that means. You see, our passage today, it starts with this phrase, at that time. In other words, at the time around which Abraham is having to deal with the situation with Hagar and Ishmael. You remember last last week, They have this party for Isaac. He's just newly weaned, and there's this conflict, and they have to send Hagar and Ishmael out. So we're talking about just after this conflict within his own family happens, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of Abimelech's army, and I have no doubt there's a little bit of a posse with them, right? The king's guard, if you will, come marching up to Abraham. Now, if you're Abraham, I wonder what you're thinking. Look, I've just had to deal with this issue in my own household, and now I've got the posse walking up. It's like a one-two punch, right? Issues from inside, issues from outside. But Abimelech leads with this statement. God is with you in all that you do. And he asks Abraham to make an oath. An oath to not deal falsely, as he had done before, remember? And to deal kindly instead with him and with his descendants. And so Abraham says, I will swear. First principle that I want you to get is this. Those promised peace should accept peace when possible. Listen, we as believers are promised peace. Peace with God, a kind of peace 
that only we as believers can have. And so we ought to be people of peace. And when we are offered the opportunity to be at peace with someone, we ought to take that opportunity. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Christians, they aren't meant to be troublemakers. They're not troublemakers for the sake of making trouble. We, we don't start fights. We just work for the God who ends them. So how is this peace possible? Well, I think there's two reasons that we see in the text, and I'm sure that there's lots of other reasons that peace can be made possible, but I think these two are uh, at least uh, here and they're essential. First, God was blessing Abraham and it was noticeable. Abraham has kept his household set apart, remember? He's commanded to circumcise his whole family, to not intermix with the uncircumcised, to, to live a different kind of life devoted to God and teach his descendants how to walk in the way of the Lord, not in the way of the world. And Abraham has been doing that and this has brought blessing and it's made them distinguishable from everyone else around them. And yet at the same time, he has not separated himself from any interaction with unbelieving people, the unbelieving people around him. He has not so isolated himself that the unbelieving people around him cannot see the blessing of God on his life. He's been close enough for a couple of years for these people, these foreign people who worship other gods, to recognize the presence of the true God in his life. Here's the problem for us. We either detach ourselves from the unbelieving world to such a degree that no unbeliever actually sees anything significant in our lives. No unbeliever actually sees the inside of our house, if you will. Sees the way in which God is working in any significant sense. We're not noticeable. At the same time, we have another problem or, or another ditch that we can fall into. We try so hard to fit in with an unbelieving world so as not to offend them that we end up sacrificing that which is actually distinguishes us. And this is problematic because at best, what we end up doing is winning people to something that is sub-Christian. We end up reaching a lost world, but reaching it for a different idol and not for Christ. We end up in, under God's discipline ourselves. And so God was blessing Abraham, and it was noticeable. That's the first reason. The second, though, is this. Now, now, now um, I'll say first here, some of you may object. Some of you may say, oh, look, Cody, I've been trying to do that with so-and-so in my life. I've really sought to be obedient to God and, and to have this person in my life, and yet they don't seem to see God's presence there. They don't, they don't, there's, no, there's no peace between us yet. And, and I want to tell you, I want to remind you, I suppose, that Abraham has been living amongst Abimelech and his people for three to four years. Like, this can take time takes time. But there's also a second reason, one that, that 
you don't have control over. It's this. Abimelech had the fear of God. Abimelech had the fear of God. And that's, that's absolutely necessary. What do I mean by fear of God? The fear of God is that recognition that there is a moral standard outside of us and that someone will enforce that standard even if earthly authorities do not. It's a part of God's common grace that we talked about. His restricting evil in the world. Abraham and Abimelech's first episode in Genesis 20, we saw this really clearly. Abimelech asks Abraham why he lied to him. Why'd you lie to me? And Abraham's response is that he didn't think that there was any fear of God amongst these people and that they would kill him if he didn't lie. There's nothing, there's no reason for you to be restricted from doing this evil to me. And so I lied to you to save my own life. And, but in fact, Abimelech did fear God, even if he wasn't of God's chosen people, even if he didn't believe in the promises, even if he wasn't saved. See, there are those who remain rebels to the true king and yet give deference to him and to his people, not necessarily for God's sake, but for their own sake. They recognize that it would go better for them to do certain things, to live in certain moral ways. So Abimelech wants peace with Abraham, frankly, because he doesn't want any trouble with Abraham and his household. He wants peace with Abraham because he's scared of the way in which God can work through Abraham and his family. So it's self-preserving for him, and yet God uses it. Abraham agrees to this peace treaty in principle, but there's an issue that he wants to iron out first. His household dug a well, and Abimelech's servants have seized it. They've taken it. Now, if you don't know, water is sort of necessary to live. I don't know if you knew that. And it's necessary for basically everything to live. People, animals, plants. And Abraham, his trade is a traveling herder right? He has livestock, sheep, and the like. And he's very wealthy. Like I said, he's got a large household, and he's got lots of employees, if you will, and he's got lots of animals. And those employees and those animals, they need to drink water to live. And so a well becomes a pretty important thing. You can't just go to the sink and get some water in Abraham's day. A well is the difference between provision and destitution. A well is the difference literally between death and life. And so Abraham confronts Abimelech about it. You see, here's the deal. The well can't be both of theirs. It's either Abraham who has a right to it or it's Abimelech. Now Abimelech, he pleads ignorance. He didn't know about it. First he heard about it. Abimelech seems in that position a lot, right? I I know. I don't know. Regardless of how this confusion came about, Abraham trusts Abimelech, he trusts his word, and he agrees to this peace treaty. But in verse 27, he adds this addendum to it. He sets aside these seven lambs, and Abimelech is like, what's this about? Again, Abimelech has no idea what's going on. 
And, and, and he goes, why are these lambs here? And, and Abraham explains, well, this is a witness between us that I dug this well, that it's, that it's mine. Now, now, Abraham's not buying the well. What he's doing is he's, he's gaining the rights. He's sealing the rights to use the well. I have the right to use this well, not your servants. You will not seize it. Your people will not seize it from me. That all the kingdom would recognize that this well is for Abraham and his household to use. And they agree, and the place is called Bersheba. And we know that by God, Abraham's descendants have a right to the whole promised land. You see, it's interesting, Bersheba, if you look later in the Bible, it's the southern border when when uh, the, the, the promised land is described later on, it says, well, the promised land goes from Dan to Beersheba. Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. It's part of the promised land. It's the southern edge. And we know that, that God has promised the entire promised land to Abraham and his descendants. It's, it's theirs by God-given right. But this, this is the first earthly manifestation of it. Abraham's descendants journeying to enter the promised land, reading this, written by Moses, right? They realize, Abraham, he got a taste of the promised land. And when God gives you a taste of the promised land, it, it's provision. It's provision. When we enter the promised land, it really is a land flowing with milk and honey. So Abraham's descendants, they read this and they say, wow, God brings about provision and peace. Point in all of this is the well either belongs to Abimelech or it's rightfully Abraham's. It can't be both. The well matters. So what's all this mean for us? Second principle is this. We need to have clarity on what we can't give up. Clarity on what we can't give up makes peace possible. If we don't have clarity, then we'll end up in conflict. What's the well? What's the well? The well in Scripture, when we hear these phrases, when it talks about the well a spring of water, uh, it typically represents two, one of two related things. First, it can represent the Spirit of God going out and doing the work of God. So you see the image of wells or springs of water or rivers of water. It oftentimes represents the Spirit of God going out to do the work of God. Or uh, the other thing that it, that's related to it that it can represent is the work of God to bring about His promises. And so you have these promises, and God's Spirit goes out, and God's Spirit works, and it brings about, God does the work and brings about the promises He's made, promises that He's laid out by His Word. And so, so this truth is a truth that gives us life because it's based in the character and the work of of God. I think Psalms 1, Psalm 1 lays it out really well. Here's what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, and all that he does, he prospers. You see, God's word, his truth, is a stream of water, provision for us, believing and obeying that word produces something, not quick success that sprouts up and burns off, but long-term prosperity and blessing. But listen, church, for years, we've been giving up the well. For years and years, we've been giving up the well. We've been led to believe that in order to have peace with the world, an unbelieving world around us, that we need to find some sort of neutral ground, that we both can kind of use the well. What we don't realize is that in doing that, the world has seized it. The neutrality assumes that Abraham and Abimelech have equal rights to the well, but they don't. Abraham dug it. It's Abraham's. God promised it. And when it comes to who has the rights to truth, I want you to understand that there is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. If we believe the Bible is truth, then the Bible must be the foundation for considering the truthfulness of anything else. We don't believe the Bible is truth, then why are we here? As an example, I'll try to give you an example of this. Let's say, let's say you're on the school board, and let's say the school board is getting together and they need to decide what science curriculum they're going to use this year in school. And so they come to you and they say, you know, we know you're a Christian. And we respect that. In fact, that's a big reason why we asked you to be on the school board because you have such high integrity as, as, a, as a Christian and uh, your Christian integrity precedes you and, and we really wanted you to be on this board. But, but we just want to ask that as we decide, as we make this decision, as we have this meeting about the science curriculum, which one to use, that you would just, could you just put aside your Christian beliefs for a second and, and just judge these unbiasedly, judge them neutrally, if you will. Well, let me ask you, is that actually neutral? Is it neutral? Of course not. You've just been asked to lay down your assumptions, and by laying down your assumptions, you have to take up their assumptions. You've laid down your Christian belief, and necessarily you have picked up secular belief. That's what you've done. It can't be nothing. It has to be something. Why am I mad? Because it happens all the time. I know. We do this all the time. I've done this. We do it and we don't even realize it. Satan has so, is so good at tricking us. He's 
caused us to believe that we're being more Christian when we do this because we're being kind and nice and whatever, when really we are sacrificing the truth of God. We're giving up the well. Guys, don't give up the well. The worst part is, here's the worst part about it. The secular materialist, they don't even have any basis for morality. They have none. It's just whatever someone thinks, or if enough people think it, then that must be it. And thus, they actually have no basis for trusting in science at all. They have no basis for doing science in any honest way. And so we've given up the well to someone we can't even trust. Listen, we think that we can create neutral territory from which to dialogue with non-believers. So for some sense of, of, of maybe being nice or, 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 or we, we, you know, what we think will afford peace in a situation, or maybe just because we're ignorant that, that of what's happening and that we're giving the well up, we give ground to thoughts and ideas and ideals that just frankly are not biblical that don't comport with God's word. As soon as you give up God's truth, you necessarily have given in to a lie. Something is either truth or it's a lie, period. You've given away, friends, the foundation of your life and your salvation and the basis for all the blessings you have in Christ. And then we wake up one day and we wonder why the churches are dry and decrepit and dying. We wonder why an ungodly and unbiblical culture is rolling through the church, destroying and deconstructing. How could this happen, we say? Well, we've cut ourselves off from the wellspring. We've given up the well in exchange for a mirage in the desert. Don't give up the well. If we start to give up the well, we give up what gives us life. We give up the eternal promises of God for temporary peace with man. And ultimately, ultimately, we will have neither. But if we stick to the well, while those who do not fear God will hate us and persecute us, and they will, from that well, we can become a blessing to others. From that well, we can have provision. Let me finish the story before we apply this. One, once the covenant is struck, Abimelech and Phicol, they return to their land. Notice that the land of Beersheba, they go out of it. They just, they're just like, look, we're going to just stay away from this well. His. And Abraham does something that we might not expect. It says that he plants a tree right there by the well, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase we've seen before. Wherever we see that, it denotes the people of God worshiping and serving God. And why does he plant this tree? Well, I think Psalm 1 gives us a hint, right? As Abraham and his household wander around that area with their flocks, the tree is like a flag, for everyone, that right here, right here is where you can get water. Right here is where you can get provision. Right here is where you can get shade in the heat. 
Later, this image is used by the prophets like Zechariah to describe the place where God's people walk in God's ways, and God removes the iniquity in a single day from them, and everyone invites their neighbor to come be under the shade of God's tree with us. You see, serving God makes extending peace possible. We only have the opportunity to extend peace to the world around us if we put serving God as our number one priority. You can't give up the well and be able to offer living water to someone else because you don't have the well anymore. If we seek to find peace with unbelievers or an unbelieving world by relinquishing the well of God's truth, putting us at odds with God rather than worshiping and serving him, then we have no hope to offer anyone. That's why serving God must always be the priority over peace with others. That's why it says, love the Lord your God first. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, because if you don't do the first one, you will cease to do the second. Jesus is a good example of this. You remember the only time that I, now I may be wrong on this, the only time I think that Jesus is around a well is in John 4. He's going through Samaria, right? And he stops at the well, and his disciples go off to get some food, and he's thirsty. It's the middle of the day. It's super hot. And a woman comes up to get water, and he says, hey, give me some water. I always find it interesting. He doesn't ask. He just says, give me some water. Jesus does, I guess. I assume it's in the nicest way possible, right? And, and, and listen, he's, he's a Jew in Samaria. There is no peace between these two groups of people. And though it starts with him telling her to give him physical water, as he interacts with the woman there, it's actually, it's actually Jesus who refuses to give up the well, right? And not the well of physical water, but of true water. The promise that he is actually on earth to fulfill right then, to be a blessing to all the nations, to be a blessing even to Samaritans. Despite her dodgy questions and comments, he does not avoid the truth. The truth of her sinfulness, the truth of her need, the truth that he is the Messiah, that he has exclusive access to the water, only through him. We cannot allow people to believe that there's access to the water through anything else or anyone else truth that he alone has salvation. And he says this, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the result, she believes, and many others do as well. To put this another way, Though giving up the well, that is, fudging on what's true or what is sin, seems like an immediate gain, easier relationships with others, it ends up sucking us dry. This is what sin always does. This is what lies always do. 
And the tree in our life that ought to bear witness to God, that ought to be a flag in the desert that says, come here for shade, come here for water, come here all you who are thirsty, it withers and dries up. And what's more, we will no longer be calling on the name of the Lord and serving him. And listen, Jesus is clear, if you're not for me, then you're against me. You can't, for instance, give an example. You can't ignore that God's design, that God designed marriage between only a man and a woman and expect peace to come from that. Maybe you avoid a conflict with someone uh, at the onset and you think that that will put you in a better relational position to share the gospel later on. The problem is that you've already given up the well of living water. Ephesians 5, and following says that Jesus' relationship to the church is like a marriage. That is, the essence of a human marriage is derived from the reality of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And that relationship is particularly between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. The husband reflects Christ. The wife reflects the church. The genders matter. The genders matter. To deny those distinctions is to deny something that's fundamental to the covenant, and to deny something that's fundamental to the covenant is to deny the gospel. In an attempt to share the gospel, what you've done is cut the legs off the gospel. You're keeping them in conflict with God, and now you've set yourself in conflict with God, bearing false witness lying. And that about the very nature of the relationship that you have with God, the very nature of the saving relationship you have with him. Now, Now, I'm not saying that God never uses our faulty attempts. I'm not saying that we can't, haven't, or can't get this wrong in the future or get this wrong in the past and God can't, that God won't use that in some way. Because he does, by his grace and by his mercy, God is God, and he can do what he wants. We wrongly hand over the rights to the well, and somehow God puts the rights back into our hands. He's God, and he's awesome. But there are always consequences, and listen, those are exceptions, and they are no reason to stay in the air. As, as Romans 2.4 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When you look back in your life and say, man, but Cody, I got this way wrong and God used it for his glory, that's not a reason to continue in that error. That's a reason to repent and say, thank you, God, that you used me even though I was totally screwed up. Friends, don't give up the well. The crowds celebrated Jesus on Palm Sunday and they crucified him days later. The world may turn on us as well. In fact, Jesus said it would. He said, if, they're put, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And then he said, take up your cross. Take up your cross. But at the same time, look to your Savior as an example. 
who didn't sacrifice the truth for short-term gain of popularity. He went to the cross instead. And through Christ, the wells of salvation have sprung up in your life and in my life. Because Christ refused to give up the well. Don't give up the well. You see, it's fitting, and I'll end with this, it's fitting that the particular name that, that Abraham used when he called out and worshiped God was the everlasting God. The everlasting God. You see, in Revelation 21, 5 and 6, it says this, And he who is seated at the throne said, Behold, and this is Jesus, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring the well of water, the water of life without payment. He is the everlasting God. He is the beginning and the end. His truth never changes. Stick with him, stick with the well, and you will always end up on the right side of history because he has decreed it. Don't give up the well. Let's pray.